Welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast, where our mission is to encourage, equip, and empower every woman on her faith journey with Jesus Christ. Today, we are honored to hear from PhD, the recently appointed Theological Council for the U.S. Assemblies of God, and recent professor and dean of the College of Church Leadership at North Central University, Dr. Alan Tennyson, as he has a conversation with our podcast host, McKelty Bloom. In this episode, they discuss our sometimes cultural assumptions of the Old Testament, why you need to know the Old Testament to better understand the New Testament, what we miss if we skip the Old Testament, how God's patience and mercy is evident in this part of the Bible, how Jesus is the clearest reflection of God's heart, and much more. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, and it truly is an honor to have you here and at camp. Oh, it's it's an absolute honor to be here. But we'll do a little bit of an introduction beforehand, but do you just want to introduce yourself yeah. and briefly, and I know you just kind of had a role change and you're doing new things. <laughs> yeah. So 12 years ago, I, I moved here from Los Angeles to serve as professor of theology at North Central University. And I've been in that capacity for the last 12 years. And then five years ago, I took on a new role of becoming the dean Mm -hmm. uh, for the College of Church Leadership, which was Mm -hmm. which is our college for kind of training vocational ministry majors. So Mm -hmm. Bible majors, pastoral studies majors, youth ministry, children's ministry, global studies, all of that uh, kind of fits under that. Uh, Most recently, I have accepted a new position uh, working at the National Office of the Assemblies of God as theological council. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that starts at the end of this month. Wow. So I'm, I'm in the middle new. of that transition. Yeah. Uh, before that, uh, when I was in Los Angeles, I was pastoring there for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And then for a time, I was also the visiting professor at Azusa Pacific University oh. or a visiting professor at okay. Azusa Pacific University, yeah. mostly teaching church history and theology. So you have been teaching for a very long time. <laughs> I have been teaching at the graduate, at the undergraduate level since 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, taught graduate courses off and on since 2004. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm trying to think and started teaching high school uh, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I, I haven't done middle school. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you'll do that eventually, right? Yeah, Just throw I'm not. It no, away. I'll tell you right now, I'm not good enough <laughs> no. to teach middle school. I don't have the patience or capacity for middle school. I, I'm just, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not nearly that talented. They are. <laughs> Bless middle school teachers. Yes. Does it feel weird walking away from teaching? I know you'll still be teaching to some capacity and advising and all of that, but does it kind of feel weird? It, it does a little bit. I mean, it, it's been, once I became dean, I went to a half teaching load. Mm-hmm. And then last semester, just because of the responsibilities I had as dean for the first time, I didn't teach at all. Oh, wow. Okay. And so it feels like, and it, that wasn't in light of this new job. This new job happened somewhat suddenly. This has actually been this very gradual transition mm-hmm. that on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, it's going to be weird. On the other hand, it feels like it's been building up to mm-hmm. this transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that will be an incredible opportunity and just a new shift, a new yes. season, yes. as I always like to say. So let's dive into this topic. Absolutely. Um, I kind of, you know, just alluded to how excited I am to talking about it and just the difference that people feel the Old Testament versus the New Testament. So I'm just wondering if just can you just start unpacking that for us of why does it feel sometimes 
like God of the Old Testament is different than God of the New Testament? You know, what what comes into play there? I think there's there's probably maybe two or three things that are going on. None of them are coming from the Old Testament itself. That's one thing I want to stress. It's not the Old Testament that's making us feel the difference between the Old and New Testament. It's the assumptions we're bringing to the Old Testament. Mm. So, one, there is a cultural assumption that somehow God in the Old Testament is vindictive and bloodthirsty. And, and we have – so let me give you this great quote. I actually wrote yeah. this down because this is a phenomenal quote. This comes from Richard Dawkins. Who uh, is, you know, well known uh, for his representation of new atheism. And Dawkins says this. He says that now now Dawkins is a great writer, Mm -hmm. uh, very much not a believer, but a great writer. Here's what (laughs) Dawkins says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, (laughs) jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachic. Okay, now I can't even say the word. Word, capriciously <laughs> malevolent bully. Hmm. Jesus is a huge improvement over the cruel ogre of the Old Testament. Wow. Now, I disagree with that 100%, mm-hmm. but that is a brilliant, I think, encapsulation of how much of the culture views the Old and New Testament. Yeah. And so because of that, that, that's one thing. It's this cultural mindset that we fixate on a handful of passages in the Old Testament as a representation of who God is without seeing them as a culmination of something else, which I'll talk mm-hmm. about in a second. Mm-hmm. I think another reason, and, and part of it is Protestantism, is that we very much focused on this law God gospel distinction that's already coming from Paul, but we misrepresented it in light of uh, Protestant debates with Catholics. And what we ended up doing was we kind of distanced ourselves from the Old Testament to begin with, Mm. treating the New Testament as if it's almost a new and improved God. Mm. which is not at all what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's this third thing, and, and I think it's an evangelical, what I call, what, I, don't, I don't call it this, folk theology, but a folk theology and evangelicalism that sometimes sees Jesus as the big brother who's protecting us from the abusive father. Hmm. And that the way that we sometimes even tell the story of the atonement is as if it's Jesus who's holding God back, you know, from attacking us rather than realizing Jesus isn't the cause for God's grace. God is the reason Jesus is grace. Wow. Yeah. And that that we sometimes have gotten that wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I think you you have these different things going on here. So this widespread cultural assumption that God is, is this in the Old Testament, this kind of Protestant distinction between law and gospel that at times has made us think the Old Testament is some other God, mm-hmm. or just the evangelical way of explaining the atonement, that it's not, not good theology. But sometimes acting as if Jesus protects us from God mm. rather than Jesus is God's protection. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we so so I think those are some things that are playing in here. And we, we come to the Old Testament with that. And then we don't read the Old Testament well. Yeah. You know, if, if I tell you a certain character in a work of fiction or nonfiction is, is just a terrible guy and I go on and on about that, then when you read that, you already have that in your head. And now you're looking for anything that will confirm that. Mm -hmm. What's surprising is that in the Old Testament, the complaint against God is not that he's bloodthirsty. It's that he's too patient and merciful. Hmm. 
You know, the character description of God in the Old Testament, the most consistent one comes from Exodus, where God reveals himself to Moses. And God's revelation to Moses is what? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, but abounding in loving faithfulness. He's a God who does bring justice to the third and fourth generation, but he's also a God who shows mercy and compassion to the thousandth generation. And then when God's going to punish Israel, Moses reminds God, remember what we've said, you're gracious and compassionate. God's, yeah, that's exactly how I am. Psalmists will repeat this. Prophets will repeat this. And and this, this character, it comes up again and again in the Bible. This is how God is. This is how God is. This is how God is. Finally, you get to the book of Jonah. And you have this incredible story of a prophet who's sent to a foreign people who are actually horrifically abusive, right? The Assyrians are terrible. Yeah. And God says, tell them they're going to be destroyed. And you think, well, <laughs> Jonah, isn't that a great message to tell anybody who's evil? God's going to bring you down. Jonah goes the other way. He doesn't want to do it. We have this whole story. Half the narrative is just Jonah trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Even even willing to die to try and get out of it. Mm-hmm. But you don't really know why. You might think, well, he's afraid of the Ninevites because they're they're horrible yeah, people, they're right? Real bad. <laughs> uh, instead, he shows up, he just preaches destruction. You know, no gospel, there's destruction. God's gonna destroy you in 40 days. Bye, you know. And the Ninevites repent. Mm-hmm. We have this beautiful line, in, and it happens a, a few times in Scripture, where it says, Jonah 3:10, and God saw what they did, and God relented. Mm-hmm. From bringing destruction. When anytime God relents, it's it's this move towards mercy. Mm-hmm. And then Jonah in chapter four tells us why he ran. We don't know why he ran until chapter four. And Jonah says to God, this is why I took off. Because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I knew that if we went to these horrible people and we told them in advance you were going to destroy them, Mm. and then they repented, Mm. that you wouldn't destroy them because that's just how you are. And so the complaint is what? God, you should be destroying people. You wait too long. Mm. You don't act enough. You are merciful. You are patient. You are justice. We want justice. Yeah. And in fact, when God does act in a way that that is is wow, God just really, you know, put the hammer down, it's always an act of justice. You know, we might think, for example, the bombing of Berlin was excessive. And then you learn about the Holocaust. Mm. And you think, well, you know what? Maybe the bombing of Berlin wasn't that excessive. Mm-hmm. You learn what actually happened. You might think, wow, it was terrible that they burned Atlanta. Well, have you heard about slavery? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, suddenly you put those things in perspective. When God finally acts in the Old Testament, and I have to say, when he finally acts, mm-hmm. when God finally puts the hammer down, it's always in the name of justice. Yeah. God does what he does because of the oppressed. And I think sometimes the reason we have a hard time with these kinds of stories is it may be, and this is going to be a harsh thing to say, we identify more with the oppressors than we do the oppressed. Hmm. And so I'm afraid of God's justice because I'm not putting myself in the place of the people that have cried out for justice and that God finally says, okay, that's enough. Yeah. Now I'm going to act. Mm-hmm. And so even some of the stories were like, oh, my goodness, why did you do that? I'm like, oh, well, there was a reason. There are people, there, there are victims here. There are people who, as, as he says about Sodom and Gomorrah, that the cries of travelers have been coming up to me. And I'm going down myself 
to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's not excessive. It's justice. And God is a God of justice, but God also is extremely slow mm-hmm. in bringing about justice. Mm-hmm. Because the people who deserve to be punished are also the people he's calling to himself. Yeah. You know, so even we say it was there's this contrast between the Old and New Testament. I'm like, not not really. D- you do know that God punishes in the New Testament. Yeah. You don't know that God brings justice <laughs> yeah. in the New Testament. Yeah. That's why some people sometimes are uncomfortable with Revelation because it's like, oh, God. No, no, no. There's a reason for this because the people of the church have been oppressed. In fact, they say the same thing to God in the New Testament. They said in the Old Testament, we come to uh, Revelation chapter six. You have the opening of these seals and the fifth seal is is not judgment. It's just the martyrs under the altar who are saying to God, how long until you finally vindicate our sacrifice. How long until you actually bring justice? That's the question. And what is God's answer? Not yet. Hmm. Not yet. And then we get to the end of these passages of judgment, and it says, and yet the people being judged still didn't repent. Which says what? That even God's judgment, until it's fully done, is allowing people to repent. Hmm. Mm -hmm. God's judgment can still be an act of mercy like it was for the Ninevites, like it was for any other group who in light of his judgment said, okay, we give up and God relents and God receives. Mm -hmm. Why is God so slow in enacting justice? That should be our question. The Old Testament's not giving us a bloodthirsty God. The Old Testament gives us a slow to act God. Mm. Why is God so slow to act in bringing about justice? It's because God is so merciful that God is giving everyone that opportunity to be on the right side before his judgment comes. Jesus is the purest reflection of that. So that in Jesus, we have a God who's taking his judgment against sin, which is justice. Again, this is justice. And he's putting it on himself to give the world opportunity. Jesus isn't a difference in God. Jesus is the clearest expression of the heart of God. Mm. I mean, even in the Old Testament, he gives us sacrifices so that we can do something about it. Mm -hmm. But in the New Testament, God does the thing himself on himself for the sake of the world. Mm -hmm. And so even even and and if I'm going on too long, you can stop. me. You're you're doing great. It's just this, I mean, it's the heart of God. So even yeah. we, we get to we get to the same question in Second Peter, uh, where Peter actually talks about why hasn't the Lord returned yet? You know, I mean, the, the New Testament's saying it's been it's been some time, yeah, right? Hello. <laughs> and uh, he says, you know, there'll always be scoffers in the last days who will say, oh, where's the reports of his coming? It hasn't happened yet. He says God isn't slow as people count slowness. Again, here's this question throughout the Bible: Why is God so slow? Mm-hmm. God's not slow as people count slowness. Rather, He's patient. Wanting none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Mm -hmm. God does bring justice. But before the justice comes, God is waiting for people to repent. It's his patience and his love that drive his justice, which is why it's his patience and his love that slow down his justice. So what we're getting with certain passages in the Bible, and again, sometimes I want to say to people, count how many passages there are that that you're having this question about Mm. and compare them to everything else. Mm. God does act. God does say at some point enough, but it takes so long for us to get there because of the 
mercy of God, even to Abraham. Let's go all the way back before the promised land, before God gives it to Israel. He says to Abraham, you know, I'm going to give your people this land, but it's not going to be for a few hundred years. Yeah. And, and why? Because the sins of the people who live in that land are not yet complete. Hmm. Meaning, even though I'm promising this to you, Abraham, I'm not going to take the land away from a people who don't yet deserve to lose it. Wow. wow. They haven't yeah. yet reached the point where it's it's worth it. It's it's justice. And so God doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. Or you get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah again, where God finally says, if it's as bad as I've heard, I have to act. And then Abraham does this beautiful line where he says, well, should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He says, you can't destroy the innocent with the wicked. What if there's 50 innocent people in town, even if everyone else is bad? Yeah. And God says, no, no, I, I won't. What if it's 45? What if it's 40? What if it's 30? What if it's 20? What if it's 10? <laughs> you know, and, and God's like, yes, I, I'm not going to destroy mm -hmm. everybody just for the sake of 10 innocent people, which to us may not seem like justice, right? But mm -hmm. God, God is driven by this patient, abundant, abundant, loving faithfulness. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what drives his justice. And so the God of the Old Testament is a patient, merciful, loving God who brings justice. Mm -hmm. But that justice is still coming out of that love. I love that. That is just like a beautiful description and analogy of just who God is to his character and the things that we miss because we as the readers I think we like to put our own lens on it and our own interpretation. And we sometimes, maybe this is just me, but the negative is highlighted. The and, and we read through Hosea and we miss the beautiful piece of what God is showing us because we're like, look at how mad he is. But and I just did a study at, at, of Hosea. And then at the end, I'm like, but look at this call to repentance that's at the end. Mm. And that, that's what I was thinking of when you were talking is like, it's, you know, all these chapters of like, how mad he is. And and then all of a sudden the end is like, here's the call to repentance. So I'm just curious, why do you think that God does in a lot of those, you know, minor prophets and in those books in the Old Testament, why is he so descriptive at times of his frustration, you know, as he's talking through the prophets, as he's saying, tell them this, is it just to really show like, this is my frustration as the loving father, you know, as parents, we, I like to be descriptive of why we're frustrated with our kids. So they learn, is that truly, do you think where he's coming from or is there a different motive involved? It's a great question. I, I was thinking as, as you were saying that I have an aunt who was married for 40 years to, to my uncle. Uh, they got married right out of high school. Um, his 40th high school reunion, he went back to the high school without my aunt and ran into his old high school sweetheart before my aunt and decided to leave my aunt after 40 years of marriage wow. and move in with his high school sweetheart. And I would always, I, I would sometimes think, how angry should my aunt be? that my uncle would leave her after 40 years of marriage. And sometimes, you know, would she be justified in that anger? Mm. And sometimes I think our anger is actually a reflection of our love mm. because we are committed. We are in a relationship. We have poured ourselves into this. And so in part, God's description of himself as a father who has been dishonored or more likely in the prophets as a husband or a lover who's been jilted, who has been rejected for someone else, that's coming out of, of the sense that we have this relationship. 
we have this love. This thing has existed between us and you need to understand the depth of what it means for what you're doing. Because mm. I think many times we, we and I'll just say this, we take God for granted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In the same way that we might take our spouse for granted and the same way that children might take their parents for granted and that the descriptiveness is a way of saying you need to understand what this actually means. You need to understand what your idolatry actually means. You understand what your injustice of your fellow because because, again, it's injustice and idolatry that always go hand in hand, because mm -hmm. when we don't recognize who God is, we don't recognize each other as the image of God. And so unjust and idolatry are always like these two hands that are working together. And what's God's big complaint in the minor prophets? It's both, right? It's idolatry and it's injustice. And you need to understand the significance of this. Mm -hmm. I need you to know what this has meant, what this does mean, what kind of rejection this is. And so, yeah, I, th I think he's descriptive because God is, is writing with feeling. But he's trying to get us to see the significance, the actual meaning of our actions. Mm -hmm. Because how many times can we justify what we're doing as if it was a one-time thing or as if everyone else is doing it or as if, well, these are just the rules of, of our culture, right? You know, I mean, yeah, someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. And we, we come up with these justifications for things that God says, that's not what really is going on here. Mm -hmm. You need to understand you know, we can live in a culture that has people who are homeless and we never talk about them because we never see them. Mm. And then God starts talking about them as if it's an act of injustice against him and how you've done this to me. And we are like, what is the big deal, God? Why, where's that anger coming yeah. from? <laughs> and God's saying, no, I see what you don't see. And I need you to understand the significance of this. Ladies, you and all your female friends, family, neighbors, and church community are invited to the largest Bridge in the Gap party of the year, the 2023 Thrive Conference. Join us this October 6th and 7th at the Mayo Civic Center in Rochester, Minnesota for a weekend with incredible speakers like Annie F. Downs, Bianca Juarez Oltoff, Hosanna Wong, Gabrielle McCullough, MCs like Susie Larson, Amber Gersman, Portia Allen, Pam Steinley, and worship with Emmanuel Live. We'll also have the Thrive After Party with Shop food and activities, as well as the appetizers for dinner with Hosanna Wong on Friday night, lunch with speakers on Saturday, more shopping, the Hope Project feature, and other surprises. This year's theme is called Pursuit, which is focused on pursuing the Word of God. This event is for women ages 12 and older. We have special pricing and exhibitor pricing at btgthriveconference.org, and groups of 40 or more to register by September 1st will receive group seating. Also, as a special gift to this year's 2023 high school graduate, Graduates, we want to invite you to attend for free. That's right. If you just graduated from high school, email us at info at mnbtg.org to request your coupon code for a free Thrive Conference ticket. Register to join us at btgthriveconference.org. We can't wait to see you there. I, I always think about the Old Testament and there's just so many pieces that people gloss over. And it's like, why do I have to listen or read about a temple being built and the, the details and the dimensions and all of that? Or why do we have to hear and learn about all of these strict laws, the laws of Moses, if those aren't necessarily followed to a T anymore? So why do you think that God put those in? Because the word is God breathed. You know, everything's in there for a reason. What is the relevance of that for us to, 
today? That is a beautiful question because because the, the verse is actually what? 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is God breathed. And then the next part, and is useful. Mm-hmm. So it's it's saying two things here, that this comes from God, but it's also useful. Useful for what? Well, useful for correcting, for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. The whole point being is that what's been written here, we can actually use for our benefit mm-hmm. to train us up. And so there, there is this automatic, you know, I always say to people, so, you know, what's the usefulness of this passage? We should be asking ourselves that in everything. Mm-hmm. What's the usefulness of this? Why is this useful? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, it's useful in part just because the New Testament was never written to stand on its own two feet. Mm. The New Testament was always written with the assumption that people would have the Old Testament, that people would understand this. The New Testament makes constant allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, I'm doing the book of Revelation this week at family camp. Like 70% of the verses have some allusion to the Old Testament. The The understanding is you're not going to get what's going on if you don't get the Old Testament. It's not enough to say Jesus rose from the dead. It's that the Messiah sent by the God of Israel mm. rose from the dead. If you don't understand that, you don't understand actually what the resurrection means and Mm -hmm. what's going on here. That in itself has to be unpacked. Mm -hmm. It's the Old Testament that's giving us this significance. So in part, why why do I need to know the Old Testament? Because I need to know the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have the Old Testament, I'm going to miss the New Testament Uh, uh, in terms of, say, some finer details uh, how do I get what it means for Paul to say in Ephesians, Jesus has broken down the wall that divides us if I don't understand the dimensions of the temple and that that's a illusion to the walls that separated people as to who could come in and who could come out of the mm. temple? Uh, if, if I don't understand this, I'm not going to understand that. And so part of this is we read the Old Testament so we can understand the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Part of it, too, is the Old Testament is giving us something about God that's still necessary for us to know. I used to do this experiment with with my class. I used to do it at another college. I didn't do it at North Central because everyone was too afraid to answer. I like this one. I tried a couple of times and people would get like, I'm like, okay, it's not going to work with you guys. Well, now I'm super curious. Here's the question. (laughs) What parts of the Bible do we not need? Mm. Like, just tell me right now. I'll write it on the board. What parts of the Bible do we not need? And I said, you know, make it easy. Just give me a book of the Bible. Like, we would be fine if we cut this book out. Mm. And so I'd had other college students who had answers. Like, boom. You know, someone said, minor prophets. So I wrote minor prophets. And then I wrote next to it the word social justice. And I crossed out the word social justice. Mm. Okay, now that's gone. Give me something else. Leviticus. Okay, let's write down Leviticus. Because I'd say to my students, when's the last time you did your devotions in Leviticus, right? (laughs) That's true. And then I'd write down there, holiness of God. Let's cross that out. Mm. Like everything that we have in the Bible is giving us something that we need to know. Mm. And that if we lose this, we end up losing that. And so what what the problem is this. The problem is is not, oh, uh, man, do I need to know all these details? I think more the problem is we haven't taught the Bible well enough in our churches that people already know the answer to that, Hmm. that people already know how to read Leviticus, Mm -hmm. that you know how to read the Psalms, you know how to read the Proverbs. That's part of the point of the church is the church is there to guide you through scripture, to teach you these things. Because at the end of the day, we have to recognize the Bible wasn't written to us. Mm-hmm. The Bible was written to the people of God. We belong to the people of God in America and the 21st century. 
but just as much as someone in North Korea in an underground church in the 21st century, just as much as someone in Ephesus in a first century church, we're all the people of God. But that means the Bible wasn't written to our culture. The Bible was written to the people of God at the culture at which this text was first given that's now been given to every other culture. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that we have a church in part is to help people understand how to read through that other cultural lens, because there are things in the Bible that are going to offend us. There's things about the they're going to offend us in part because it's not our culture, mm. you know. So, for example, and, and I might be going well beyond what you nope, asked. This is great. <laughs> uh, we have to read the Bible uh, based on the imaginative horizon of the people who first received it, meaning there's certain things that were not in their imagination that now are in ours. So, for example, slavery. We might be very critical of of why the Bible talks about slavery as if it's a given without recognizing that that was in the imaginative horizon of the people. What kind of world exists without slavery at the time this is written? Right. What the Bible's doing is it's telling us how we should feel about slavery and it's giving us the principles to protect people who are slaves. And you come to the New Testament and now you realize slaves can be in charge. But the truth is, and, and it also says slave traders go to hell. So First Timothy 1.10, that's there. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, we still have this world in which it's impossible to imagine a world without slavery. So you criticize them for not being abolitionists without saying, but that doesn't exist. And God works within that time. Why are we abolitionists today? Because the Bible put us on the trajectory towards abolitionism. Who's the first abolitionist in world history? It's Bishop Gregory of Nyssa, who, taking scripture, said, you know what? I think it's possible to live in a world without slaves. Mm. And that the Bible put us on the trajectory that why am I offended about slavery in the Bible? Because the Bible has made me offended about slavery in the mm-hmm. Bible. It put me on a trajectory toward this. Or to use more of a real uh, an example for today, let's imagine I, I write a law that reforms prisons entirely. Like I create a law that is the most humane law for the prison system that has ever existed. Mm. And people are like, that's amazing. He just reformed our prisons. Now imagine 300 years from now, we come up with an alternative to prison Hmm. that's even more humane than imprisoning criminals. People will now read my reform law as being oppressive Hmm. because why did he defend prison when he could have just done this? Well, because that didn't exist yet. I'm reforming what I have in light of what doesn't exist. Mm. What we're doing is we'd be reading my reform bill in light of what existed 300 years from now and thinking that what I'm doing is defending prisons. Mm. I'm not defending prisons. Prisons are all I have. Does that, does that make sense? That's, that makes absolute sense. I have like never heard it described like that. But it makes sense of because I think that's one of the big arguments is there are just so many pieces that are of the Bible where it's like, okay, we still have to follow this. And then there's like, well, that was actually the cultural context of that day. So that, you know, we don't that doesn't apply to us anymore. You know, people aren't running around with like 500 wives and concubines. Yes. So it's like we don't do that anymore. And I think that is one of the biggest battles that I have seen in church is like, okay, we can't use that excuse anymore of that was back then if we're still going to pick this verse and and use this. And so I think that's one of the things and the reasons of why we have to do the work and explore the historical context, the cultural context, and dive deeper into it. And you said this yesterday of not just reading the verse, but understanding now what does it mean? What's the actual meaning here? We got to understand too, the difference between description and prescription. 
Mm, elaborate so, more. So, for example, the Bible never prescribes multiple marriages, mm. but it describes a culture in which that exists. In fact, you know, when it gives us the first couple, it's just two people. And then the patriarchs for the longest time are only two people, even when they shouldn't be. You know, Abraham, if Sarah can't have a child, Abraham is expected to have more wives. And yet she's the one who goads him into taking in Hagar, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Isaac, Rebecca doesn't have children for 10 years. And yet Isaac doesn't bring in another wife, right? Mm -hmm. Jacob gets tricked into multiple wives, right? So you see this kind of almost ideal Still, it's a description, but but the patriarchs, there's this ideal here. By the time you get to multiple marriages, and I'm just going to use polygamy as an example, uh, it is not healthy. It's never pictured as healthy. Every every polygamous marriage in the Bible goes badly, right? That's like as a source yeah. of conflict. Yeah. It's not the Bible prescribing this or saying this is okay. It's simply this is the culture that this is written in. Mm. And it's giving that. So that's a difference between a description and a prescription. And so one, we've got to understand that. And when it comes to prescription, we also have to ask, is this a prescription that is, is, and again, sometimes we don't know how law works. Law in the ancient world doesn't work the way law works today. Law today, you have laws on law books. You have people who have to enforce. They have to abide by these narrow confines of the law. Law in the ancient world many times is a suggestion of how you handle these kinds of things. Because if you look at the laws in the Old Testament, they don't cover every eventuality of life. Mm. They're not like our legal system where you, you know, if you ever see a lawyer and you see behind them and all the case law books, mm, you know, yeah, I mean, like yeah. trying to cover everything, right? <laughs> yeah. That's not the Old Testament because it's not trying to. Mm. What it's doing is giving you examples of how serious something is and how this thing should be treated but at the same time, it doesn't mean that every and every the judge has to use their own wisdom to say, does this apply here? Does this not apply there? They are these guidelines. There are some things that actually change within the law itself. So there's a law given on inheritance in the book of Numbers. And by the time you get to the end of Numbers, some women have actually protested the law. And Moses comes back and says, you're right. Mm -hmm. And they change it. Yeah. So if you read it at the beginning, you're like, well, the Bible says this. Yeah, in the same book, it modifies that mm. because it says there's light in different life circumstances. This law has to be reinterpreted in light of that. And so we have to say... Are these laws here that, well, number one, what's the wisdom that they're suggesting? What's the wisdom they're suggesting in the background of what is culturally possible for someone? Mm -hmm. So if, if you don't say, for instance, in the ancient world, in the time of Israel, you don't have prisons. So you can't arrest a criminal and put them into prison. So what's possible then mm. in order to keep this community safe from someone? What is it that we have to do? Because we don't have this as an idea. This is not this is not something for us. What do we have to do? Mm -hmm. And so you read it in light of that. You also read the trajectory that the laws are on. So that the numbers law about inheritance starts here, but then it's a trajectory that also goes to here. And then you also have to look at what's the consistency so sometimes when people talk about the cherry picking, well, you just pick this versus that, you're like, no, it's not cherry picking. It's following the consistency of scripture on something that's saying this has always been the way that it is because this is an unchanging reality about us. These other things, these are not unchanging realities. These are things that are suggesting something for this time that even in later text will deal with that and say, you know, we don't have food laws in the New Testament because we don't need those kind of identity markers in order to say we belong to the people of God. Mm -hmm. We've got to understand this is why the change is. 
What people sometimes do is they treat the Bible like it's a flat text mm. where I can take any verse out. By the way, Bible wasn't written in verses. Mm-hmm. wasn't written in chapters. We, we, they're, they're just page numbers. So what we do is we cherry pick by, by, by ripping part of a text out and then saying, well, I could follow this text here. I could follow this text there. It's like a flat text. We forget that it's a narrative mm-hmm. and that in a narrative, some parts are only there because they get us to the next part. Mm-hmm. Some parts are there because they're the theme of the entire book and they're going to take us all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. And we've got to know how to read the Bible as if it's a story. And it's a story that includes our very lives. Yeah. Something that I've always really wondered about is God knew what he was doing when he gave Moses these laws. You know, all of the rules that he established in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes. What does Jesus do in the New Testament when it comes to all of these laws? Like, what is his role besides our Savior? And what does he do when it comes to those rules? Am I making sense? I feel yeah, like I'm Yeah, yeah, you, you are making sense. Yeah. Let's, let's like, give you an example, because again, this could be, this could be its own podcast. That yes, one it question. could. It's the broadest question I could probably here's, ask you. <laughs> here's, here's an example. Moses in, in Exodus, uh, Israel sins against God. And God says to Moses, look, he's already delivered them from, from the Exodus. By the way, I love this. Again, this is part of the character of God. God delivers Israel from slavery because he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm going to, I made this promise. I'm going to deliver you. Then it's not until Exodus 19, after they've been delivered, after the Red Sea, after everything has happened. And he says, now I'm going to ask you a question. Do you want to be my people? Mm. You know, God's not buying them off. God's delivering them out of faithfulness. And then he says, do you want to be my people? Do you want me to be your God? Israel says, yes, absolutely. We, we will take that. And that's when we get to Moses going up to the mountain, the Ten Commandments. This is what everything starts with. Here are these ten moral precepts that I need you to abide by. And then Israel, while Moses is gone, sins against God and creates their own gods. And and God says to Moses, he says, look, he says, I've decided that my presence is no longer going to go with you. And the reason is my presence is dangerous, right? Because I am a holy God. It's mm-hmm. like if you work at a nuclear reactor, you've got to respect the power that, that is involved there. And you, you would be fired if they found that you're someone who just wants to go lick the rods, right? Like, like you can't do that. You, yeah. you get, you got to. <laughs> and so he says that, that I want my presence will be in you in, a, in, in almost an unmediated way. It's, you know, and I'm, I'm the creator. You're the created. There's a real difference between those two things. And so my presence could be a danger to you. So I can't go with you. And Moses says to God, no, 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 wait a minute, God. He says, how will the world know that we are your people Mm. unless you go with us? Mm. Don't send an angel in your place. It needs to be your presence. And God says, well, if it's going to be my presence, there's certain rules you're going to have to follow to be saved. That's where we get cleanliness laws, right? Because if you want my presence in the midst of you, you want the uncreated in the midst of the created. There's certain things you have to abide by in order to keep you safe because I'm actually giving you my presence. And so we have these. So now we come to this, this beautiful image of, of Jesus in the New Testament where uh, we're talked about, you know, John begins in John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, then John 1, 14, and then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Hmm. So now we have the presence of God coming back to Israel, but coming back to Israel in the person of Jesus. Hmm. 
And so you have these beautiful images in the New Testament because, because again, part of the cleanliness laws are also about disease, right? That anything that's clean that touches something unclean, now it becomes unclean. Right. And because it becomes unclean, it has to do certain rituals in order to become mm-hmm. clean again. Because, again, it's about being safe in the presence of God. Mm. How close I'm going to get to the presence of God requires certain. Before priests go into the temple, they have to yeah. be cleansed. Right. Yeah. The, the, we have to be ready for his presence. So what you expect in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is that whatever is unclean makes things unclean. But what happens repeatedly is that when Jesus goes to the unclean, the unclean is made clean. So a woman with an issue of blood comes out and she touches the hem of his garment. She also squeezed through the crowd. Yeah. Meaning she just uncleaned that entire group. Yeah. yeah. And instead what happens is she's made whole. Lepers come to Jesus and Jesus makes them clean. Jesus is the presence of God. Cleanliness laws were all about learning to live with God's presence. And in Jesus Christ, we have the presence of God making the unclean clean again. And I had a a professor used to love to say this. He would say, what's the last unclean thing that's made clean in the Bible, in the Gospels? What's the last unclean thing that's made clean? Peter and John go to the tomb of Jesus. Going into a tomb with the dead makes you unclean. Mm. But when they come out, they're not unclean because Jesus has even made death fit for the presence of God. Mm, Amen. And so what you understand with Christ is not that he's changing who God is. It's that what he's doing is he's giving us this access. The presence of God has come to us to make the unclean clean again, which is why those cleanliness laws don't apply in the same way. Because now we receive the presence of God in Christ. They can still be identity markers for some people who say, but these laws have identified who I am. But the problem for Paul is that if we make them necessary, we're now saying Jesus is not enough. To add anything to Jesus necessarily takes away from Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so Paul's writing about these identity markers that he says, don't make Gentiles more Christian because it's Jesus who's made them Christian. It's Jesus who's made them clean. Jesus is the presence of God. And we've got to recognize that it's God come to us. But even in the Old Testament, it was still an act of grace for God to give his presence to Israel. But now he's returned in the person of Jesus. And when you receive Jesus, you are fit for the presence of God. Wow. That's good. We could just drop the mic right there or push them over since they're on the table. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like that. The, like the like the, uh, the the money chat. Just yeah, throw the table over and walk the out. Table yeah, walk out. Yeah, that was just so incredible. And just to tie tie up our time together here, just one last encouragement for the listeners: What are they missing if they don't read the Old Testament? You know, we know it's relevant. We, you just unpacked that beautifully. But when you skip the Old Testament and you just go to the quote, the good parts in the New Testament, what are you missing? Uh, I'm going to say this is going to, I'm tr- not trying to make this flippantly or just too cute. Nope. But my first thing that came to mind, what are you missing when you skip the Old Testament? What you're missing is Jesus. Hmm. You're missing the fullness of who Jesus is. You're missing the trajectory of the story that tells us that what God has promised, and maybe we want to go all the way back to Adam and Eve 
and God's promise to Eve that that your you you will your descendant will strike the serpent's head. Maybe we want to go to Abraham and this promise that your family will become a blessing to all nations. Maybe we want to go to David and this promise that you will have a descendant always on the throne and I will be his father. He will be my son. In other words, your descendant will be called a son of God. Maybe we want to go to the promise of a Messiah and the prophets who will be filled with the spirit. And that's how you can identify him. Maybe we want to go. I mean, I could just keep going oh, on yeah. and on. Oh, yeah. But but how do we get to Jesus mm -hmm. unless we go through the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. Unless we understand that Jesus is fulfilling this story, the story that we're in. And so if, if we don't get the Old Testament, in a sense, we don't get the full story of Jesus. Uh, we don't get the full story of what God is doing in the world. We, do, we don't get the mission of God. Uh, that that actually begins here with creation, but then continues with Israel and now is continuing as well with the church. And we're not getting that. And, and we also don't get our own story, mm. right? That I'm not getting that the story of the Old Testament is the story of my family. It's the story of my history. I belong to the people of God that have their beginning here. And when I'm reading these stories, I am reading my own history. And so without the Old Testament, I'm missing the fullness of Jesus. I'm missing the fullness of the work of God in the world. And I'm also missing the fullness of who I am in Christ. Well, that was good. That's I just really hope that people listening today truly soak that in and understand that there are absolutely things for you in the Old Testament. And there are more than just things for you. There's things for our Christianity, who we are as a whole and what we believe. So just thank you so much for joining me today and just unpacking all of that. And we appreciate you being here and at Family Camp and thank teaching you. everybody. So thank you so much again for thank sharing you. all of that. It's been an honor. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bridging the Gap podcast. We were honored to hear from Dr. Alan Tennyson on the Old Testament's relevance for today. We'd love for you to share this episode with a friend or rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Learn more about BTG by downloading the Bridging the Gap app through your app store, by following MNBTG on social media, or by visiting our website at mnbtg.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to being with you next time on the Bridging the Gap podcast.